The arrogance of man, as we see those images and we hear those words, the arrogance of mankind and the lies that, that we believe as men and women is almost boundless. Men and women will tell you that they see so much, but in reality, their vision is so murky. We will claim that we know so much, but our understanding is so limited and so narrow. We think we are powerful, but the truth about man is that we are damaged and frail. We think we're good, but the history of mankind in our own hearts say otherwise. We are anything but good. Since the dawn of creation, the great lie that man has told himself is to convince himself that he is his own maker, his own sovereign, and his own judge. We're really not that different from the the people that lived in ancient Mesopotamia after the flood. Remember, God came down to them and said, now I want you to fill the earth and spread out. And the people said, what? I don't think we will, God. In fact, I think we'll do the opposite. And in their foolishness, together they hatched a plan. They said, let's build ourselves a city with a great tower that will reach into the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. It'll be a symbol of our power. We will show God that we are sovereign over our own lives, that we can do as we please. Didn't work out well for them, did it? Thousands of years later, and we sang about this already this morning, thousands of years later, a man named John, who walked with Jesus of Nazareth and knew him like a brother, was given the privilege of receiving a vision from the risen, glorified Son of God, who identified himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the one who was and the one who is to come, the Almighty. And it was disclosed to him the truth about God and the truth about mankind and how this physical world is moving towards an end. John was given a vision of things that mankind is, to be honest, too finite to really understand or know, but he was given this vision in such a way that he could see and he, he could understand and he was commanded to write it down so that it might be passed on to future generations, even to people like us this morning in the year 2022. And John was shown this great hall, this great throne room in a very real place that today in our physical form we have no access to, but it is a real place, the place where God manifests His infinite presence. It's a place of unfathomable power and authority, a place filled with jewels and flames and lightning and thunder and a sea of glass and majestic creatures who sing all the time and give glory to the one who sits on the throne. And in this vision, John was given a glimpse into the distant future to a particular time when the end of days will finally come. And what John saw in the middle of the throne room surprises us as we read in Revelation 5. What does he see in the middle of the throne but a lamb? That's the last thing you would expect. But it's not just any lamb. It's a lamb that's been sacrificed. A lamb that is slaughtered and bloody. A lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes which represent power and authority and wisdom. And then John sees in the right hand of this great being sitting on the throne a particular scroll, a very important scroll that needs to be opened so that the end of days might come. The problem is this scroll was sealed so tightly with seven seals of hardened wax. And the impression we get from the text is that nobody can do this. The task is just too great to break these seals, to open the scroll. But then John hears a powerful angel cry out, Who is worthy? 
Who can open the scroll? The time had come to bring an end to the misery and the groaning of the earth. The time of God's judgment is at hand, but who can do it? Who is worthy to open the scroll? It was apparent to John in that moment that nobody was able. The task was too great, and it says he began to weep because he felt like the situation was hopeless. But then a voice said, look, look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered, and therefore he is worthy to open the scroll. And to our surprise, the lion who everybody's pointing to now is the very same lamb that had been standing in the throne room. Why is he worthy above all others? Well, John gives the reason. Because he was slaughtered to purchase a people for God. And the reader says, well, hold on a second. I don't get it. How can, it, how can something that is slaughtered conquer? That make no, makes no sense to the human mind, right? The Bible gives us a completely unexpected answer. The lamb conquered by humbling himself, by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and in shedding his blood as a propitiation for the sins of God's elect, this lamb has ransomed a people who are now a kingdom of priests who will reign with God forever and ever. And by the time we get to the end of this vision, 14 chapters later, John is going to describe this lamb who is now a lion as he roars from heaven to judge the earth. With justice he judges and makes war, it says. His eyes are like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Happy Easter. <laughs> I share all of that with you this morning because before we get to the practical aspects of what this day means, I want you to know exactly who we're talking about. Because today we have a tendency in the church to focus so much on the humanity of Christ to the detriment of these truths about his divinity. And by doing so, we forget that he is that lamb. He is that lion from Revelation 5. And he's everything else that you heard in that video. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in the heavens and on earth. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. These are the loftiest truths that we can know as human beings. These are things that natural man denies in order to keep believing the lies that he has to believe to deny who Jesus is. He knows not the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He does not know the lion who will someday return to judge him. That's our subject matter for this morning. Now, we're going to go to an unusual place this morning. I want you to grab your Bibles, and we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I know we're going to come down from those lofty heights from Revelation 5 and Colossians 1. But we want to get this down to street level as well. This is definitely an unconventional text for Easter Sunday, but I think you'll see why we are here in just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
Our text is verses 8 through 12, but we're going to back up to the beginning of the letter. As many of you know, 2 Timothy is Paul's final letter before he was executed by Rome. Written from a prison cell, written to his young protege and fellow pastor Timothy. We know at the end of the letter in chapter 4, he makes it clear. Paul says, the time of my departure has come. He knows he's about to die. And then he adds these famous words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Precious words from a wonderful saint. Back up to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, underline that, by the will of God. So this is, this is nothing, anything good in Paul. We sometimes think, we, we lift these men up, and they were great men who walked the earth, but they're just men. The only reason Paul is an apostle is because God said he would be. He was called to this by the will of God. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. According to the promise of life. We'll come back to that in just a minute, because life is the theme of our service this morning. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. And there's, guys, there's a ton of emotion built into this letter, and understandably so. This is... Paul's last will and testament, written from a spiritual father to a spiritual son. They have been through many things together. Paul is passing the torch of ministry here. He is leaving Timothy with a precious few final exhortations and instructions here. The tears that we read about here, although they're not explained in this text, no doubt go back to when Paul and Timothy had to part ways in Ephesus. It breaks, it breaks the heart of, of Servants of the Lord of ministers to have to go separate ways, especially in that day, you couldn't just FaceTime somebody. But note how Paul returns that same emotion. He maintains the hope that maybe he will see Timothy one more time, and if he does, that will fill his heart with joy. Now, here's the thing that Paul knows about Timothy Timothy is not a carbon copy of himself. Paul is an older man now. He's probably in his 60s. He's gone through so much in his life. All the travel, all the battles that he has fought, he has been toughened up by the ministry. He is thick-skinned. But Timothy's not there yet. And it seems, based on the tone of the letter, that Paul's concerned about Timothy. He knows that he'll struggle once Paul is gone. And that's not unusual when the mentor departs the scene for the for the disciple to have to figure his way through it, but Paul's concerned about him. So because of that, listen to how Paul builds Timothy up in verses 5 and 6. He says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you. Disciplers, it is so good to recognize when you're discipling somebody, I see your sincere faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, listen, you have such a great spiritual heritage. You have been raised by these godly women, and I praise God for that. And now remember the gift and the calling that God has placed on your life. Do you remember back when I laid hands on you and prayed over you? You have to fan that flame. 
of that gift that God has given you so that when I'm gone, you can shepherd the flock of God. Verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy, do not shrink back now. Don't let a spirit of fear defeat you. Lean upon God. He will give you the power and the love and the discipline that you need to fulfill the calling he has on your life. These are hard words for Timothy to hear. Now our passage for today, verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity." but has now been revealed by the appearing, the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, in the original Greek, this these five verses are quite remarkable. Paul is prone to do this when he gets carried away writing. He writes one long run-on sentence. And this is one long sentence in the Greek, just as he does in the first chapter of the letter to the Ephesians. And what he's built into this is what we call a chiastic structure, a chiasm, which is where an author writes a, a sequence of ideas and then repeats them in reverse order, sort of a mirrored effect so that he can say the same basic things twice but in a creative way. So I'm going to give you a diagram of these verses and you can see the structure of what he's written here. You see verses 8 and 12 are bookends where Paul talks about both shame and suffering. Verses 9 and 11 speak of God's purpose and calling in his life, in their lives. And the center of a chiasm is the big idea. The middle verse in a chiastic structure means this is what the author intends to emphasize. And you can see there, the main idea is in verse 10. And in that, you see the two main parts of what we celebrate this weekend in Passion Week. Right? First, abolishing death on the cross. And second, bringing life and immortality to light. So we're going to look deeper here at verse 10. Take a look at it. See how verse 10 speaks of something now being revealed. Now being revealed. What's Paul talking about? Well, if you go back to the previous verse, verse 9, you'll see it. What is now being revealed is God's own purpose and grace, which was granted to us, Paul says, in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Now, friends, I want you to see what that means. This means that your story and my story are huge. If you're sitting here this morning, you're found in Christ, and you are trusting in Him alone, and you are following Him as Savior and Lord, Verse 9 tells you that you were called, you were saved by way of this holy calling from God Almighty. And it has nothing to do with your works. It has nothing to do with anything inherently good in you. It was an act of His grace before time even began. Can anybody here fathom that? That God would know you and mark you out for salvation before time began. So catch that. Don't, don't run past this. Your being saved within time and space, within your lifetime, was a part of God's eternal purpose. Decreed by Him before even day one of creation. 
And in fact, even the faith that you have today came from his hand. You have saving faith today because he eternally decreed that you would have saving faith. That's amazing. God marked you out by name. He saved you according to his eternal purpose. All of it's rooted in the fact that he desired to extend his loving kindness to you. Christian, here's what I'm trying to tell you. Never underestimate how much you matter to God. The Bible reinforces this over and over again, how much you matter. The loving kindness of God extended to you, even before the foundations of the world. So that has now been revealed. In fact, it was revealed at the appearing of Christ, right? At the incarnation, when God the Son stepped out of heaven and took on a human body and a human nature. Now, while he was on the earth in human form, Jesus did a lot of things, right? We've been walking through this through the Gospel of John. But see what Paul emphasizes in verse 10. Two things. Number one, he abolished death. And number two, he brought life. Let's take a look at those one at a time. Jesus, first of all, abolished death. There it is. Oh, that's here. here's what I wanted. Okay, so wait, I'm going to do that. Okay, so there it is. Centerpiece of the chiasm. I get going, man. I forget. Did that make sense, centerpiece? Okay, good. All right, let's talk about abolishing death. The Greek verb that Paul uses here, katargeo, has an interesting range of meaning. The NAS translates it abolish, but you can see some of the similar meanings that this particular word has in other places in the New Testament. It can mean to nullify something. It can mean to put an end to something. It can mean to render something inoperative. And it can mean to deprive something of its force or power. So look at that list on the screen and rejoice, friends. Rejoice that this is what Jesus has done to death. If you're found in Christ, this is what he has done. Death has been defanged. The, the stinger has been taken out of it, right? Its power to incite fear in a person has been drained out. Hebrews 2 talks about this very specifically. Through death, Jesus rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. All their lives. See, for human beings, the idea of our death someday makes us a slave to fear. We know it's coming, and I know we talked about this in recent weeks. I know we all try to push it out of our minds right now. We're like, oh, we'll trust in doctors. We'll extend our lives until we can't. And so there's a slavery, an anxiety of of, of this fear of death that goes with us, but that is no longer true for the person who knows Christ. For that person, the power of death has been drained out. It's been emptied. Last Sunday, we talked about how Christ has effectively transformed this scary thing, death, into something not so scary, sleep. And we asked the question, is anybody really afraid of going to sleep? Nobody's afraid of sleeping. In fact, we love it. We wish we had more of it. We're not afraid of it. Amen, right? It's a comforting picture. The fear of death is the, the power that is drained out. And now, for the believer, it's, it's falling asleep. That's good news. That's comforting. Sleep is a gift from God. Something we should be thankful for, not afraid of. Sleep is a rest from the toils and the sorrows, right? And the suffering that that we go through down here on planet Earth. In sleep, we lie down and we shut our eyes only to rise again, refreshed and fit for the very next phase of existence that we're being taken into. So 
Jesus has taken man's fear of death and transformed it into this blissful thing of falling asleep. But again, let me just say it. This is only for somebody who has submitted his or her heart and life to Jesus. For the person who rejects Christ, the power of the devil and the fear of death remain. By the way, they should remain. You should be afraid. Why? Because the wrath of God hangs over you. That's a fearful thing. For the person who rejects Christ, death is not a peaceful sleep. Not at all. That's what compels us day in and day out, week in and week out, to share the good news of the gospel that forgiveness is available through Christ. Believe the gospel. Submit your heart. Repent and be saved. Forgiveness is right here. And that's what compels us to share the good news. So, abolishing death, draining the power of death. Jesus has done that. On to the second part of verse 10. Jesus brought life. Remember, up in, in, up in verse 1, the promise of life in, in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean? Well, life is actually more complicated in Scripture than you might think. In fact, there's three aspects of life to consider just, I think, in this passage. First of all, you have to know that the only reason you or I have life is because Jesus is alive. Period. We have life as a historical fact because Jesus walked out of that tomb as a historical fact. He walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, right? And unlike Lazarus, he never died again. That's an important little addendum that we sometimes forget. He never died again. He is still alive. Listen, if Jesus had been crucified and stayed dead and buried in that grave, Jesus of Nazareth would have died within Judaism, and we would never know his name. He would be a footnote in history. Isn't that true? But because of the glorious truth of Easter, his resurrection life is our resurrection life. So that's number one. Number two, you and I have life if you're found in Christ only because God made us alive. He brought you to life through regeneration of the heart. This is a biblical truth that we have to get our our minds wrapped around. Once you and I were all spiritually dead because of sin. We were spiritually dead, all of us. No spiritual life in you at all, dead bones. You were one of the walking dead, darkened in your understanding, living blindly, living foolishly, and that wrath of God hung over you. But the Bible says God is rich in mercy, right? But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved you, he made you alive together with Jesus. He made you alive. He caused you to come to life together with Jesus. In simpler terms, we use this outdated phrase, right? You were born again, right? I mean, I know we don't like saying that much anymore because of the old stigma, but that's what Scripture teaches. We were born again, born by the Spirit of God. Your dead soul was brought to life all by a gift of His grace, not because you deserved it, not because you're better than anybody else or more spiritual than others, as a gift of His grace. And it's my prayer this morning that everybody in this room Today, right now, that is where you stand, alive together with Jesus. And if that's true right now, you are being transformed slowly and progressively, right, into the likeness of your Savior, growing slowly, growing surely in the fruits of the Spirit, in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. True? I hope so. And now we're free in Christ. We've been made free. We've been brought to life and made free. Free from bondage to slavery. We don't, have to, 
sin anymore. We've been, that, that power's been broken. We're now free from fear and worry because we know what the future holds for us. We know where we're going. And that's the third part of life that is so beautiful, eternal life. Because of the grace and kindness of God, all who have trusted in Christ, we have an, an inheritance waiting for us in the heavenly realms. One day we're all going to pass out of this physical world and into the spiritual world. What then? What then? Why, why won't humanity talk about this? Have you noticed this? We avoid this conversation. We all it happens to 100% of us, but we don't want to talk about it. For the believer, we pass into the presence of our Savior, into a spiritual world where the Savior reigns. We read it from John 11 last Sunday. Jesus' promise, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He will live on spiritually even if he physically dies. Here in this letter to Timothy, Paul refers to it as immortality. Now, you got to be careful not to misunderstand what Paul's saying here. Every human being is immortal in the sense that we, we leave this physical world and we pass into the spirit world. Everybody, believer and unbeliever, will pass into the spirit world. The only question is, where will you end up? That's the big question. When Paul speaks of immortality here, he's talking about believers. He's talking about the eternal, incorruptible nature of the life that we will have someday in the presence of God for all eternity. Incorruptible. What awaits us is this amazing inheritance that can never be taken away. It can never fade. It can never be spoiled. And it's reserved for us protected by the very power of God. That's the immortality that awaits us. So abolishing death and bringing us life. And I hope I've been clear. My goal as I was preparing this week for this message was one, to make sure the gospel comes out nice and clear and simple. And I hope it has. And if it hasn't, will you come ask me a question afterwards? If you have any questions about about this whole idea of who Jesus is or how one is saved or how you can be forgiven of your sins, there are people here that would love to answer those questions. Come see me afterwards. The second thing I wanted to do this morning, though, was to talk about a very practical Easter message for the day and age that we're living in. Anybody notice it's, it's nuts out there? And so I, I wanted to be high and lofty, but I also want to bring it down to street level. And let's talk about what Easter means now, today, tomorrow. And this is why I picked this passage in 2 Timothy 1. Let me draw your attention back to our chiasm, to the two verses on the outside, verses 8 and 12. The themes of shame and suffering. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, Paul writes. And then verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Now, stop for a second. I want you to think about this. The, what is the message that Paul is communicating in these verses to Timothy? How do you go about convincing somebody to persevere in serving Christ when there is a 100% chance that you are going to suffer greatly and maybe die? Yeah, Timothy, you know, it's true that I'm about to be beheaded for preaching the gospel, but I'm still handing you this, this torch of ministry. Here you go. Yeah, it's going to be hard, and the world's going to come after you. Your life will be at stake, but do not be ashamed. 
of what you believe. Do not shrink back. Stand firm in what you know. Do not allow that spirit of timidity or fear to overwhelm you. Lean into the power of God. He will carry you through. This is what Paul is exhorting him. But that's a tough sales pitch, isn't it? From the guy who's about to get his head cut off. Here you go. That's a tough sales pitch. Now, think about us for a second. Ten years ago, 15 to 20 for sure, we would have a really hard time identifying with Paul and Timothy in this passage. We would have a hard time with that. The idea of being ashamed of the gospel. What does it mean? It refers to doubting whether you've, the thing you place your confidence in is actually true. It's the idea that having a fear of facing humiliation because you might have put your trust in something. It might have been misplaced. And so you begin to doubt. Guys, this is what the world is going to be screaming at you tomorrow and the next day and for the rest of your lives. They're going to be screaming this at you, attempting to shame you for believing what Scripture says, to shame you for proclaiming long-held and eternal truths in God's Word. You should be ready for this. This is the growing reality that we're facing. Now, look, I'm a little bit older than most of you. I've seen a lot of things. I've never seen anything like what I'm seeing right now. Ask anybody my age or older. It's wild out there. This is the growing reality we face. On Friday night, uh, Alex Windsor, who's in the back, he, uh, he randomly sent me a link to an article in the Atlantic magazine. When I read it, I instantly said, I, I just have to share a little bit from this article. And so I'll put it up on the screen in just a second. The author of this piece was born into a Jewish family, but now is an avowed atheist. And yet he used the same example I used at the beginning of my sermon, the Tower of Babel, to describe what's happening in America. An atheist. Here's what he wrote. I'll put it up on the screen. He said, What would it have been like to live in Babel in the days after its destruction? People wandering amid the ruins, unable to communicate, condemned to mutual incomprehension. The story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America, for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. Babel is a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid, the scattering of people who had once been a community. Now that is incredibly insightful from an atheist. Incredibly accurate from somebody that doesn't share belief in God, but sees what's happening in our country. And I'll, listen, I know I, I could stand over here for the next hour, just rattle off a series of things that are happening in our culture, which is absolutely shocking. I don't have to convince you that things are spiraling downward, do I? We see it, we feel it every day. We feel the political tribalism that now dominates everything. We've entered into a sickening period of neo-paganism. Let's just call it what it is. It's neo-paganism where sex and gender are being redefined so radically and at a pace that is head-spinning. We're no longer allowed to question radical feminism or race essentialism, the things that are coming out of our universities. Common sense seems to be gone. Lies are being told directly to our faces by the media. 
The wealthy and the powerful do as they please. There's no accountability. Every institution in this country that in the past provided stability is being chipped away right now. The family, the court system, law enforcement, the integrity of our elections. Nothing can be trusted any longer. There is no unbiased source of truth that we can, we can put our hands on, right? Even atheists recognize it. And of course, social media is out there, and that's just making everything a hundred times worse, is it not? Making everything more hostile and more divisive. And I step back, and you know what I see? It's Romans 1, is it not? God has given us over as a people to our own devices, to the things that we said we wanted as a country. And now the devil is having his day in our nation with all of his lies. Now, if I was honest, I'd tell you this is, I'm not concerned about me, I'm old. But for my kids and for my grandkids, it, it concerns me for sure. But I expect the unbelieving world to do this. And you should as well. We should expect unbelievers who have no loyalty to Christ or no desire to know God to push the boundaries as far as they possibly can in sin. What concerns me is professing Christians and churches that hold up the Bible who are also now being swept up into some of these same cultural lies and approving of them and going on social media and approving of them. Guys, there are churches gathered this morning where they will exchange the gospel of Jesus Christ for the gospel of equity and social justice. They will ignore the cross. They will ignore the empty tomb and instead talk about activism and tolerating the neo-paganism that is now infesting our culture. It's happening this morning. Friends, as a Bible-believing church in 2022, we're in a weird place right now. And I am convinced that some very serious things are coming our way. And by that I mean some serious consequences for any Christian in any church who holds the line on biblical truth. The devil and the world and their allies in false churches are not going to tolerate the things that we teach and preach for very much longer. They're not going to put up with them. Especially the hard truths that get in the way sort of block their progressive bent. We're going to be ridiculed and slandered. We're already viewed as enemies in so many corners of this country. And if authoritarianism continues, and if censorship continues, we could very easily see ourselves silenced. Silenced as a church. I expect that soon pastors like myself and my fellow elders, we're going to be labeled all kinds of terrible things. We're going to be called hateful. We're going to be called abusive and worse. And here's what I want to tell you. By being a part of a church that teaches as we do, you too will be a target. Have you counted that cost? This is what makes Paul's letter to Timothy so important on a day like Easter Sunday 2022. Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't back down. Don't shrink back. Be prepared to suffer on account of the gospel. By the power of God, he says. Be prepared to suffer. So the question is, where do we go from here? The question is, do we shrink back? Or do we fan the flame of the calling that we have as a church family? I hope the answer to that is clear. But again, we need to count the cost of this, don't we? I was reading a blog post a couple weeks ago, and the author made what I think was a really astute observation. 
He said that over the past 20 or 30 years, we've had a tendency on Easter Sundays to preach what he called apologetic sermons. And I was a part of this. It's not a bad thing, by the way, but, but I did many of these sermons. And so we got up here on Easter Sunday and we said, let me tell you why we can defend the resurrection. And we went on to give all kinds of really good historical arguments and textual arguments, and that's fine. But his point was this. To some extent, we've allowed the skeptics to set the discussion. And most of the time, they really had no interest in hearing our evidence anyway, but we allowed them to, to sort of set set the discussion and put us in a defensive posture. And based on where our culture is now, a decade later, here's what his advice. He said, it's time to go on offense. It's time for us to just grow in boldness and simply proclaim what we know is true and let the chips fall where the chips fall, trusting in God's sovereignty. It's time we live out what we preach. Do we really trust in the power of gospel to save? And do we really trust in the power of God to sustain us? Do we have to start living that out? And I think that's good advice. Now, as we do that, we have to make sure we do it in a way that pleases the Lord. We're not to become angry fist shakers at the world, right? We have to make sure we do it with confidence and with joy and with compassion to preach the good news of the truth, to not back away with a smile on our faces and love in our hearts, but to boldly challenge the worldview of the people around us, the ones who are deceived and stuck in these web of lies. So it's a very fine line we have to walk. We are going to stand firm, but we're going to do it in a way that pleases the Lord, that is winsome to those whom God desires to save. And God will save whom he will save. Isn't that true? We preach that, we sing that. So let's live that out. Let's look out at the harvest field and let's not be ashamed. God is going to save whom he will save. Will we suffer for it? Yeah, we will. But count the cost and be ready. And we'll do it together as a family, right? More and more, guys, we're becoming what the Bible says we're supposed to be. I think this is the good news. Aliens and strangers in this world. For a long time, we melted in really well. We look like everybody else, but guess what? Those days, are, those days are sort of in the past. We're becoming what we were supposed to be. Salt and light in the world. Different, peculiar. Aliens and strangers waiting to get to our, our true home someday. Think about this for a second. Why are you here today? You're a peculiar person. Hey, <laughs> Why didn't you just sleep in? Sunday, right? Sleep in. Why are, you, why are you listening to me drone on for 45 minutes? Why are you singing songs that the world would hate, would never sing with you? Why is the way you look at the world just so different and so offensive to everybody around you? I mean, there's a million things. If you stop and think about it, we're a weird people. But that's what we're supposed to be, aliens and strangers. Can you embrace that and not be ashamed? That's the test that's coming. Because we all want to be loved and liked. We want our likes, our clicks and our likes, do we not? But the time is coming when you won't be liked. Can you embrace that and not be ashamed? Last thing to notice in verse 12. See where Paul puts his confidence. Verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Man, highlight that, underline it, tape it to your mirror. Paul's confidence is so good. 
as, as much as we hold up Paul as this great example of a Christian, his confidence was not in himself. It was not in his own strength. It was not in his own intellect. It was not in his own goodness or anything else. His confidence is in the one in whom he believes. His confidence is in the person of Jesus Christ who marked him out for salvation, who called him to preach and to teach the gospel. That's where our confidence has to be set. And when it is, guess what? We won't be ashamed because we know it's true. It's a good reminder for us. Always remember that the Bible is God's word, not yours. The message we proclaim is about Christ, not about you. Never forget this either. The gospel is the power of God, not the power of you, not the power of man. It's a supernatural thing, so we don't have to try to control it. We don't have to try to manipulate it. We just need to let it go. Spurgeon was famous for this. You know his famous quote? I think I have it. There it is. He says, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. Just let it loose, and the lion will defend itself. That is sound advice. Let's loosen God's word here at Oak Hill. Again, not in an arrogant way, not, in, not with contempt towards those who don't understand, but with confidence and with joy, knowing that we have the truth. Let the lion go. I'll close with this brief encouragement from what I think is the greatest part of the New Testament that speaks to the resurrection outside the Gospels from 1 Corinthians 15. Boop, there it is. Let these words sink in. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 24. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, that is so important, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that's where we sit today. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, that's what we're waiting for, and then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. This is the history of man, right? It's, it's death. Sin and death, it's all around us. Read through the Bible and you'll see it over and over again, right? This guy lived and then he went and slept with his father's. Page after page. Sin, life, death. It, it, it's going on today. Do we not engrave tombstones and markers? We say this is when the person lived and this is when the person died. And on every human being's grave, you see something like that. But not on the tomb of Jesus. On his tomb it says, he's not here. That's what makes the difference. Easter marks the beginning of the final phase of this world. Easter is the beginning of the end. Think of it that way. It's the beginning of the end. What we celebrate this morning is that the risen, glorified Son of God is the first fruits. He's the pioneer who sets the way, right? He sets the path. He cuts a path for all those who will follow him. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, a resurrection that is near and coming soon. And because he lives, we have life now, don't forget that, and the promise of eternal life to come. He is the lamb and the lion. He is the one appointed to sweep away all of our sin and sorrow, the one who has overturned the curse of death, and the one who will someday bring final judgment and perfect justice to this world. And all in his timing, not ours, all in the order that he has assigned. 
And so here comes another Easter. We celebrate, every year we celebrate Easter, and I don't know, I sort of hold my breath because I think, I look at that empty tomb and I want more. I want the consummation of all things. Are you with me on that? Because the world is so messy. It groans. My body groans for redemption. <laughs> but I know God will help me be patient. He'll sanctify me as I get older, and I'll wait on him. But in the meantime, do not miss this exhortation from Paul to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony that you've received, friends. Do not be ashamed of it, but join with the other saints in suffering for this gospel according to not your power, but according to the power of God. Remember, Christ has abolished death. That is finished. He has done that on the cross, and he has brought life. He's brought it to you. And not according to anything good in you or anything that you've done, but simply by his grace and according to his purpose. What a marvelous God we serve. We bow your heads. I'm going to give you just a few minutes as Grant comes up. I'm going to give you a few minutes to just, just quietly pray and talk to the Lord about anything that you heard today, anything that you want to share with him, anything you want to praise him for, anything you want to ask him for. And again, if you want to ask me questions about anything you heard this morning, will you please find me after the service? Bow your heads in prayer.